Sometimes very silly ideas come to be widely accepted, even though they're very silly and can easily be shown to be false. For example, have any of you ever heard that you lose 60 to 70% of your body heat through your head? You ever heard that? A piece of information seems to be widely accepted. But if that were true, we would be warmer if we wore a hat and nothing else. (laughs) But in fact, we lose about 10% of our body heat through our head, which means that wearing a hat can be helpful in cold weather, but not as helpful as covering the rest of our body. And yet, the silly idea seems to stick around. I mention that because there's an equally silly idea that sticks around about the Bible. It's the idea that the God of the New Testament is loving and the God of the Old Testament is not. He's just angry. And unfortunately, some Christians seem to believe that. And so they're a little bit suspicious of the Old Testament. As if the Old Testament shows us a different God than the one we meet in the New Testament. But in fact, the Bible presents us with a God whose character is unchanging. He doesn't pick up new characteristics as Scripture progresses. And he doesn't drop characteristics either. The passage we're going to look at this morning shows that very clearly. We are returning to the book of Jeremiah, as I said earlier, and we're in a part of Jeremiah that's called often the book of consolation. It's chapters 30 to 33. Through Jeremiah, God is speaking in these chapters to a people who have been devastated by his judgment. That judgment came because of the people's commitment to sin and to evil over many generations. The judgment came through the Babylonians as they conquered Judah and looted its treasures and carried many of its people away into exile in Babylon. It's to those devastated people that God brings this extended message of comfort and encouragement, the book of consolation. We began to look at it the week before Christmas in chapter 30. We saw that God set out his peace plan. He spoke about saving and healing his people. In our passage today, God says more about that plan, but he also explains the motivation behind it. One writer says, Jeremiah chapter 31 takes us into the very heart of God. It shows us that behind the promise of salvation and healing, there is the Father's love. If you haven't found Jeremiah 31 yet, it's page 792 in the church Bibles or in the larger print Bibles, 1227. We're going to pick up at chapter 31, verse 2, and we'll read through to verse 26. This is what the Lord says. 
The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again. And you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. This is what the Lord says. Sing for joy, Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad. Young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah. Mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You disciplined me like an unruly calf, and I have been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. 
I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road that you take. Return, virgin Israel. Return to your towns. How long will you wander, unfaithful daughter Israel? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. The woman will return to the man. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words. The Lord bless you, you prosperous city, you sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. At this, I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. This is God's word. And right at the end there, Jeremiah explains this word from the Lord has come to him in a dream or in a vision of some sort. And he finds this dream or vision to be deeply satisfying. It's not hard to see why this is so pleasant to Jeremiah. For many years, he has been preaching judgment. And now, he's being given messages of comfort and encouragement. The passage we just read divides into two main sections. But what holds all of this together is God's presentation of himself as a father who loves his child. Throughout this, God calls Israel both his daughter and his firstborn son. It's always the same people God is talking about, but he alternates between referring to them as his daughter and his son. Now, that does not mean God is confused. I think it's a way of highlighting the comprehensiveness of his love. A human father's love for a daughter may have a slightly different emphasis to it or a slightly different nuance than a father's love for a son. And I think God is simply showing in this passage his love for his people is full. Nothing is lacking. There's no aspect of tenderness or strength that's missing from God's love. So the Father's love is what ties all of this together. And the passage focuses on the results of that love, what it does. First of all, in verses 12 to 14, the Father's love gathers, unites, and blesses His people. Look how it starts in verse 2. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. This verse is a reference to Israel's past that's intended to give them hope in the present. 
before the exile in Babylon, the defining event in Israel's history was the Exodus. The people were enslaved in Egypt. They cried out to God under their harsh oppression. And he delivered them miraculously and gloriously. Even though Pharaoh tried his best to hold them, even though Pharaoh pursued them with the sword, God led them out of Egypt and into the wilderness, which was just what it sounds like, a wild and barren place. But amazingly, the Israelites found favor in the wilderness. God was with them. He provided for them. And he led them finally to the land he had promised them. That was the land of Canaan, which became their land. The Old Testament accounts of that often talk about God giving his people rest in that land. And here in verse 2, God says to the broken people of Jeremiah's day, who are now exiled from their land, he says, I am still the God who gives rest. I've done it before, and I'll do it again. I know your exile in Babylon is like your ancestors' time in the wilderness. It's a barren time with harsh oppression. But God says, like I did with them, I will show you favor and I will give you rest. So verse 2 is pointing to a pattern in how God works. He is the God who meets his people in their difficulty. And he brings them through difficulty and out the other side. So the Exodus was not a one-off. It was a demonstration of the kind of God God is. And he will again show the kind of God he is by coming to the people of Jeremiah's day in their own wilderness experience in Babylon. And then in verse 3, God explains why he's doing this. He shows his heart for these people. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. God says to these scattered people, recently you have experienced the truth that I am the God who punishes sin and evil. That is part of who I am. I don't ignore evil. But you mustn't miss this. I am also the God who never stops loving. Did any of you deserve my love? No. You never have deserved it. Not when I made those big promises to Abraham, not when I rescued your ancestors from Egypt. And you don't deserve my love today either. But God says, I do love you all the same. And my love doesn't give up on you. I'm always at work, he says, to draw you, to engage you, to connect with you, and to take you forward with unfailing kindness. That's the kind of God I am. So these exiled Israelites can have hope for the future, not because they've done well, not even because they're going to do well in days to come. 
They can have hope for the future because God's love will not let go. He's always taking the initiative, taking his people forward with unfailing kindness. And as you and I approach a new year, we can go into 2020 with hope and confidence for exactly the same reason. Our God loves us with an everlasting love. He has committed himself to us. And he takes us forward with unfailing kindness. In the next verses, we hear what that's going to mean for these exiled people. Remember, in Babylon, they're under harsh authority. That means they're living life constantly a little bit off balance. They're never quite sure what's going to be imposed on them next. They're never quite sure what's going to be taken away from them next. So they have no certainty or security in their lives. They know the rules could all change tomorrow at the whim of the Babylonians. But God promises them a very different future. Look at verse 4. I will build you up again, and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards in the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out in the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. In contrast to the uncertainty and the instability of life in exile, God promises the kind of stability that allows vineyards to be planted and to become mature. Now, I don't know very much about vineyards, but I know that it takes years for vineyards to become fruitful and mature. You can't do that kind of work when there's upheaval going on. But God promises a time when the days of upheaval will be in the past. And so the mood will change as well. People who are constantly on edge will begin to relax. They'll take up their instruments again and they'll dance again. And, God says, they will be united again. As we've gone through the book of Jeremiah, we've been dealing, actually, with only half of Israel. When the book began, the northern kingdom of Israel had already gone into exile. We've been focused on the southern kingdom of Judah. But one of the notable things of the book of Consolation is that God starts referring to all Israel again. Samaria was the capital of the north, and Ephraim was the largest tribe of the north. And in the Old Testament, both those names were often used to refer to the northern kingdom as a whole. And here, as God speaks about the future, the names Samaria and Ephraim occur just as often as the name Judah. The names begin to be used interchangeably. Not referring to different parts of Israel, but referring to God's one united people. Sometimes the name Jacob is used. That's also pointing to unity. 
God is talking about all Jacob's descendants, not just some of them. God is promising to throw his arms wide and gather them from wherever they have been scattered. And verse 6 describes these people united in their worship of God. Let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Zion is Jerusalem. Before the exile, the northerners had tried to worship God in their own particular way. They adored two golden calves set up at Bethel and Dan in the north. But in the future, God says, they will unite with the southerners to worship the Lord where he said he was to be worshipped, in Jerusalem. And look at the kind of people God is going to gather. Down in verse 8. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. If you look at the group described in verse 8, it's not a very impressive group. The blind, the lame, ladies at their most vulnerable because they're pregnant or even in labor, Where are the warriors? Where are the leaders? Well, no doubt there is a place for them in this group. This is not saying they're excluded. But the most noticeable characteristic of these people is that they're weak and broken and in great need. One writer says about these verses, The nature of God's love is that he pours it out precisely on people such as these. It is to the condemned, the weak, the contrite that God gives his living water. It is these he preserves from ever stumbling again, whom he adopts, nurtures, and honors. Yes, there are wonderful things ahead for these people. They will dance with the joyful. But when they come, they are broken and weak. They come totally dependent on God's care and God's provision. And this too is part of a pattern. This is how God works. When Jesus told a parable about what his kingdom was like, he pictured his kingdom full of the poor. The crippled, the blind, and the lame. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, none of this is ruling out the strong and the competent and the healthy. But it does show God's love does not depend on our strength and our competence and our health. 
Those things don't get his attention. They don't qualify us for his kingdom. God looks and sees and cares about our need, not our impressiveness. He's looking for people who will acknowledge that they need him. And those people find he meets our need. In verse 9, being led beside streams of water is a picture of never failing supply. Being given all that's needed to thrive. Earlier in the book, the Israelites had been described as stumbling in their ways, walking in byways on roads not built up. In other words, They were on the road to nowhere. Nowhere except misery and destruction. But here God says, those are the kind of people I will lead on the path of life. Where they won't stumble. And notice the biggest privilege of all at the end of verse 9. In the ancient world, the firstborn was the heir. The firstborn received the inheritance. And here God says to this unimpressive people, you have been adopted as my firstborn son. God claims them as his own. All that he has is theirs. And then see how in verses 10 to 14, All we've just looked at is gathered up and it's announced to the whole world. The nations are to take notice and get ready. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. Verse 14 is talking about thriving worship. Previously in this book, the priests have been called out time and again because they've been leading the people astray. But what's described here is a time when worship True worship is at the heart of society. The priests had no land of their own. And to compensate for that, they received a share of what was offered to God. And here, so much is being offered to God that the priests have an abundance. What this picture is telling us is that worship of the Lord is not a dead ritual. It's not going to be a religion of formalities. These people are offering so much to God because they have been filled with his bounty. They're overflowing because of his goodness. And they're giving back overflowing offerings as expressions of their praise.
Now, we've seen in previous weeks, when this book looks to the future, certainly it is looking to the return from exile after the fall of Babylon. But there's a depth and there's a richness to these descriptions that is looking much farther into the future. The return from exile was part of a pattern of God gathering, uniting, and blessing His people. He had done it before, after the exodus from Egypt, but neither the exodus nor the return from exile were the climax of the pattern. The New Testament presents us with a king who will bring all this to a climax. It tells us Jesus Christ is now at work gathering a people, not just from Israel, but from the ends of the earth. And when that work is done, Jesus won United people will enter into the blessing that's described in these passages. Perfect security, prosperity, and joy. Perfect enjoyment of the Father's love. So these promises and these pictures are for us. Those of us who feel blind and lame most of the time. Those of us who find ourselves weeping over our weakness and our losses, but who look to God and say, save us and lead us to this future. When you and I come with that attitude, the response we hear from our Father is, I love you with an everlasting love. I will take you forward with unfailing kindness. There are lots of striking things in this passage, lots of striking images and pictures. But the most striking thing is the abrupt change that comes in verse 15. I don't know how many of you have ever used a record player. They used to be very popular, then they just about disappeared, and recently they seem to be back again. But if you ever have used a record player, you will know the kind of sound that you hear when someone bashes the needle and the beautiful music is interrupted by a scratching sound as the needle rips across the record. Well, that scratching sound is the equivalent of what happens here in verse 15. Every part of this chapter in the early verses has been like a piece of soaring music, building up, but it gets abruptly shut off in verse 15. From the music of comfort and joy and abundance, suddenly in verse 15 we hear a very, very different sound. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 15 is like a challenge to what we've just heard in verses 2 to 14. Surely there are some hurts that are too deep for the Father's love to reach. Rachel was the wife of Jacob. She was long dead by the time of the exile, of course. 
but she's used here to represent every mother in Israel. Every mother who has been cut deeply by the loss of a child. Whether that was an infant hacked to death by the Babylonian armies, or whether it was an infant taken from the mother's arms and carried away into exile. Those children would grow up, they would live and die without their mother ever seeing them again. Ramah was a town five or six miles from Jerusalem. It was used by the Babylonians as a deportation center. Those who were going into exile would be first herded to Ramah, where they would be chained, ready to join the next group marching to Babylon. And so you can imagine mothers from Israel gathering on the outskirts of Ramah, trying to catch a glimpse of their child, trying to speak to their child one last time, and then just wailing as they're beaten back by the soldiers, as they can only watch while their children stumble away in chains. So it's no wonder verse 15 says these mothers refuse to be comforted. What could possibly comfort them? Their mourning is a challenge to the promises of verses 2 to 14. Yes, the Father's love can gather and unite and bless, but can His love speak to this kind of pain and loss? Can his love reach into terrible anguish like this and bring comfort? God doesn't shy away from the question. He is the one who brings up the question. God is not ignoring this great weeping. And notice what else God has been paying attention to in verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim's Moaning, you disciplined me like an unruly calf, and I have been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. If Rachel is representing in this passage all the weeping mothers, Ephraim here represents all of the children. Ephraim was Rachel's grandson. And if the mothers are suffering deep pain, the children are experiencing the depths of shame. It's not the shame of what has been done to them, it's the shame of their own sin and rebellion against God. That's what had led to the exile. And these exiles have come to see and to feel their guilt. In verse 18, moaning is not in the sense of grumbling. This is grief about the broken relationship with God. These exiles acknowledge the exile was God's discipline. And they long to be restored but they are just drowning in the shame and disgrace of their sin. 
They're like the prodigal son. And the story Jesus told. The son turned his back on his father. By demanding his inheritance early, he just about was saying, I wish you were dead. The son went his own way, and he ended up not only destitute, he ended up deeply ashamed and humiliated. A Jewish boy feeding pigs. He could not dare to hope his father would accept him again. Not as a son anyway. All he could think of was to go back and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. In other words, I know your love can never wipe away this shame and disgrace. I know I can never be fully restored, but maybe you'll tolerate me in the servants' quarters if I keep out of sight. Maybe you're in that same state of mind today. Wondering, am I too unclean? Am I too far gone for God's love to restore me? Maybe he'll tolerate me, but surely he could never wash away this shame and disgrace. If that's where you're at, you need to know what happened to the prodigal son. The father came running down the street to meet him. The father swept the son off his feet and he brought him home to the biggest party ever. We know it was the biggest party because his brother pointed that out to the father. We never celebrated like this before. The son wasn't just tolerated. He was celebrated by his father. The father in Jesus' story represents God the father. The same father who's speaking here in Jeremiah chapter 31. Who says in verse 20 about disgraced, humiliated Ephraim. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. I'm not closed off. Ephraim's shame and disgrace is not too much for me to handle. At the end of the verse, my heart is literally my gut. This is intense emotion, and this is God talking about himself. At the beginning of the passage, God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Well, here's another aspect of that same love. It's not only everlasting, it's visceral. Deep emotion felt in the gut. Like the father in Jesus' story, God says he's looking down the road yearning for his son to come home. That's exactly what's described in verse 21, where Israel is now pictured again as a daughter. Set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road that you take. 
return, virgin Israel, return to your towns. How long will you wander, unfaithful daughter Israel? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. The woman will return to the man. People have wondered what on earth that last sentence means. It seems to be a way of saying the Lord will create a new kind of people. A people more alive to him than people have ever been before. We'll think more about that promise another week when we look at the rest of this chapter. But for now, just notice how God calls this wayward, disgraced son or daughter to return to him. Just head for home. Don't let your disgrace and your shame hold you back. Believe what God says about his love. It's a love that delights to welcome and forgive and celebrate sons and daughters who come home. There's no need to keep wandering, going deeper and deeper into disgrace. Head home to the Father. His love is deep enough for you, whatever you've done, wherever you've been. We noticed this second half of our passage comes as a challenge to what we heard in verses 2 to 14. God himself raised the question, are there any hurts or any disgrace that my love can't reach? God raised the question and he has answered it. The Father's love is strong enough to deal with our deepest pain and shame. But how? How will our deep mourning be comforted? How will our deep disgrace be washed away? God has promised his love can deal with those deep things, but he hasn't said how. And by the time we get to the New Testament, the questions are still there. Earlier we read Matthew chapter 2, where Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31. And there's very good reason for him to quote it. Because Jesus' birth has not brought an end to deep pain in the world. The reason Matthew quotes our passage is because in his determination to kill Jesus, King Herod has all the boys in Bethlehem slaughtered. All of those under the age of two. And as he records that incident, Matthew quotes verse 15 from our passage. About Rachel mourning for her lost children. Matthew is acknowledging the great weeping of Jeremiah 31 is still going on. Yeah, the baby is born, but the mourning isn't over. It's still there, the kind of deep, debilitating pain that tears at our hearts and feels like nothing could ever bring us comfort. But Matthew has another reason for quoting verse 15. He wants us to see Jesus is the one who will bring God's comfort. In Jeremiah 31, verses 16 and 17, God told those who mourn, there is hope for you in the future. And as Matthew tells us about Jesus' birth and childhood, he's telling us, 
here is how God will deal with your deepest pain. Here's how he'll deal with your shame and your disgrace. He doesn't deal with it from a distance. He comes right down into the thick of it. Into a world that's full of bereaved mothers and homeless exiles and widows and orphans. A world that's full of people who are trapped in dark sin that makes them feel filthy and ashamed and worthless. Matthew wants us to see God's love didn't lead him to be a spectator to all that. It didn't cause him to hold back and hope the people would come looking for him. No, God's love led him to dive into the pain and the shame and the muck of it all. God the Son entered the world in poverty. He grew up in obscurity. He was hated. He was hounded all the way to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus died so that the broken and the disgraced and those who live with great mourning can be healed and cleansed and comforted. The Father's love doesn't stop short. In Jesus Christ, all we need has been provided. Jesus' work on the cross has the power to reach the most sorrowful and the most dark places in your heart. You and I can receive healing and cleansing that begins now. And it will be completed in God's new heaven and earth. When all God's people have been gathered and united, together we'll enjoy all of the blessings his love has provided for us. Blessing that leaves no more mourning or crying or pain. The God of all comfort has provided perfect comfort through his son, Jesus. So let's come back to him. Some of us maybe need to come for the first time to receive his forgiveness and his cleansing. But all of us need to keep coming to him. He's the one who can heal us in the deepest places. So let's respond to his love and his greatest gift as we sing, it came upon a midnight clear. <laughs>